0: Thank you for tuning into this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a series right now called Foolish Things, a study in 1 Corinthians. Now in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul draws a sharp distinction between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. He tells us that Jesus' way looks like foolishness. Even though Paul wrote in the first century, the way of Jesus still seems foolish to many people today. So why should anyone follow it? join us for this series and learn why being foolish is actually the wisest thing you can do. Once again, thanks for listening and feel free to check us out at tablechurchdsn.org. So we moved to Des Moines in May of 2019 to plant Table Church. And whenever you plant a church, the uh, the wisdom goes that you want to get to know the city you're planting in, right? You want to know the culture, the history, the spiritual landscape, that kind of thing. And so what I did was I spent the first probably five months just meeting with as many leaders, many of them Christians, spiritual leaders, nonprofits, even the Chamber of Commerce, people from those you know sectors, uh, just to get to know Des Moines a little bit. And whenever I met with somebody who's a Christian, I would always ask them the same question. I'd say something to the effect of... Um, I'd say, describe to me the spiritual landscape of Des Moines. And I left it kind of open-ended like that because I figured, you know, people will probably have different things to say and, you know, some of it might overlap and so perhaps I can uh, deduce the truth out of the overlap, right? What I wasn't prepared for was that almost everybody said the same answer. And here's what almost everyone said when I first came to Des Moines and asked them to describe the spiritual landscape here. They said, the churches here are competitive, is what they said. And there's always like this sense, people seem to think the churches in Des Moines are kind of divided, kind of working against each other or something like that. Now, I haven't lived in Des Moines probably long enough to really have a huge opinion on it, um, but I, I, at least three people that I met with would quote to me this, this line supposedly said by Billy Graham when he came here, I think in the 70s, he came to Des Moines to do a rally. And apparently Billy Graham said as he was leaving, he said, I'm never going to come back to Des Moines until the church has learned how to work together. Now, whether that's true or like an apocryphal story, I don't know, but the fact is that that is the mindset that many people have, Christian and non-Christian, about the church in this city. And remember, that was 2019. That was before any of us imagined fighting with somebody about masks or vaccines, like 2020 took things to another level, right? And so I know this is, this is a kind of a personal issue for many of us here. I've heard many of your stories having walked through difficult, divisive things in churches in the past, lots of people that carry like, hurt from past churches. And so, but the question that I want to ask in this sermon today is this, how do we maintain tender hearts of compassion towards people that have hurt us? How do we maintain tender hearts of compassion towards those who have hurt us? And not just the kind that says, oh, yeah, 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 sure, I'll pray for them, or something like that. The kind of thing where you really do care about them. How do we become that kind of person? Is there any way forward in this maze of division and hurt that often defines the people of God? Paul was concerned about division in the church as well. So concerned, in fact, that. His plea for unity that we just heard from Ivy, uh, that's essentially the main point of 1 Corinthians. I'll read it again. Verse 10, chapter 1. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Wow. Look, if you're reading, if you're following along in your Bible, here's what you should do. Underline that verse, verse 10. And the margins put main point. This is the main point of 1 Corinthians. It's like the thesis statement, if you will, of 1 Corinthians. Everything later in the book is kind of trying to build on what he says in verse 10. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll realize they were facing some crazy stuff. Some stuff that makes like 2020 look like a cakewalk, you know? You thought our culture went through some stuff? Uh Guess what? They had severe, unrepentant sin. There was deep divisions in theology. There was economic oppression happening between people in the church. Look, if Table Church ever got half as dysfunctional as the church in Corinth, I'd go be a hermit in the mountains. And so Paul is writing this letter to try to resolve some disputes. But what we're going to find in the next few weeks is that Paul is not simply trying to get them to get along. Paul is not simply trying to do conflict resolution, give them a few strategies, not just giving them some relationship hacks. He's calling them back to a radically upside-down way of living. He is calling them into a completely new rationality, one that makes absolutely no sense to the rest of the world. He's not calling them to behavior management. He's calling them to a revolution of the heart, And nothing short of the gospel can do it. We start a new series today called Foolish Things, and we're going to look at the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians over the next five weeks. And the reason it's called Foolish Things is because of this really cool verse that Paul has in chapter 1, verse 27. It says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So Paul talks a lot about foolishness in these first three chapters, comes up over and over again. And when he talks about foolishness, he's talking about the way of the cross, the downward way of Jesus. Here at Table Church, our mission is inviting people to the way of Jesus. So we're going to talk about this in this series. What is the way of Jesus? Well, it's a way of living that's marked by the cross, by the things that Jesus taught us to do, this selfless and downward mobility. And so the the foolishness that he's talking about is that. It's also the fact that God God took the poor, the uneducated, those without honor in society, and he says, those are going to be my people to change the world. Those are going to be my people that I'm going to build my church on earth. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Now Paul's urgency comes through in verse 10. Because look, there's this, div- this divided church's only hope of staying unified is for them to understand how radical the gospel is. And so you hear his urgent voice in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you in the name of Jesus Christ. He attaches Jesus' name to this. He's saying, look, this is a matter of honor for our Lord, that you be unified, that there be no divisions among you. The reputation of Jesus himself is at stake here, he says. And Paul, he's not expecting cosmetic unity. His goal is not just that, that people would put up appearances to look unified. Like Paul expects nothing less than true, genuine relationships of oneness. He says, be perfectly united in mind and thought. This is not just an agree to disagree kind of thing that he's talking about. Paul's not going to settle for that. He's going to say, be perfectly united in mind and thought. In fact, the Greek word for thought can also be translated judgment or opinion. He might almost be saying, I have the same opinions. Like that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Like How do you do that? This is beyond surface level unity. He's calling them to the kind of oneness That they're so discipled into the way of Jesus that they truly do accomplish the thing that he talks about in chapter two. He says, we have the mind of Christ. Not the minds of Christ. Not various and conflicting views of the mind of Christ. He says, we have the mind of Christ. This is a lofty thing that Paul is putting before the Corinthians. And if you're like me, you're thinking like, no way, that's impossible. How could a bunch of... Sinful people get together and actually have, be perfectly united, as he talks about. Well, first of all, I would say that Paul isn't talking about every little detail in life. He's not telling the Corinthians to have the same favorite color and that kind of thing. He, but he is talking about specific matters of theological importance. He says, no, we, meet, we need to be together on these things. We need to be together on these things. But even even so, even with that caveat, it's hard for us to imagine that that would be possible, isn't it? Like we've been through too much. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've just been through too much disagreement and you've seen too much to actually think that what Paul wants to have happen here could actually happen. But look, this is not a tangent for Paul. This is not just a little rabbit trail in his thought. Paul admonishes his churches to unity, not just in 1 Corinthians, but in letter after letter. The book of Philippians, he does it all over the place. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That should be your attitude, he says, and he admonishes them to be unified. In the book of Philippians, over and over again, we see Paul do this. Jesus prays for it in John 17 as he's praying for the followers to come. What does he say? That they would be unified and that the world would see that. And it'd be a testimony witness to him. This is not just an extra add on to the gospel. This is central. So why is it so hard? Why is this so difficult for us today? I think in order to understand the answer to that, we have to do a little cultural analysis to to try to work through what is it about how we think in 2022 that we might need to take into account as we try to live out Paul's message in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to share a phrase with you that I've shared before, but I really want us to learn this because I'm going to keep bringing it up because I think it's a big deal. Uh, Many thinkers today say that we live in what they call the age of authenticity, Okay, That's the phrase, "the age of authenticity." I'm going to unpack this. James K. A. Smith, a philosopher, he says, "The age of authenticity is the post-60s age in which spirituality is deinstitutionalized and understood primarily as an expression of, quote, "What speaks to me, What speaks to me." Another philosopher named Charles Taylor writes that since the 1960s, there's been what he calls a cultural explosion around this idea of authenticity. So the groundwork for this movement, this moment in culture, was being laid hundreds of years ago. But just in the last few decades, there's been this explosion, like gasoline has been poured on the fire, and all of a sudden, like, authenticity has just exploded in our culture and it's come together to, to produce this new kind of worldview. He calls it a social imaginary. It's just the way that we all think of ourselves and the world. And so authenticity is the notion that the, the path to fullness and purpose and fulfillment and meaning in life, that it's not through conformity to the ways of my ancestors, It's not through conformity to a tradition, a religious tradition. It's not through submission to an institution. It's not through submission to an authority. Those do not bring you purpose and fulfillment. The age of authenticity says something completely different. It comes from within me. Now, once upon a time, when you asked me who I was, I would have responded with things external to myself. I would have said, well, I am Phil, son of Kevin from the land of Cedar Rapids. That would have been who I am. You ask me who I am, I refer to these, my, my history, my land, my traditions. These are the things that would bring together a person's identity. And, and so fullness in life, meaning and fulfillment in life for a person like that, that comes when we fulfill a particular role, an, expect, an expected role. And when we do it well, whether it be a warrior or a, or a, a ruler or a husband or something like that. That's where meaning in life comes, from fulfilling the expected role well and bringing honor to yourself, your family, your tribe or clan. But in the age of authenticity, we see something completely different. Fullness of life comes not through these external factors, but it comes through internal ones. And by living out these uh, desires that I have inside of me. So look, this is big. This is like unprecedented in human history. We've done a 180 degree turn in terms of where we find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. It's a big deal. And it's happened in a relatively short amount of time. So we think very differently than people used to, than people did even in the Bible times. And it's the ocean that we swim in today. You might remember a few weeks ago, I zipped through some Disney princess songs to show you how like, it's dripping with this ethic of authenticity, uh, you know. Elsa sings, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. Like, I, I wonder if the Disney songwriters knew they were just giving preachers low-hanging fruit with that line. It's just there, you know. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Um, Isabella in Encanto, she says, what could I do if I just grew what I was feeling in the moment? In other words, like, like what's inside of me? Like, what if I just did what I felt? Maybe that would lead me to purpose and happiness. Maybe the most bullseye expression of authenticity is Moana. She says, it isn't out there at all. It's inside me. Well, what, what, what exactly is inside of you? Well, meaning, my purpose is not out there. I'm not going to find it out there. It's, it's in my heart. So the path to fullness in life is not out in the traditions. It's not in the wisdom, the rules of history, culture, ancestors. None of that. It's found inside of me. It's by attuning myself to what moves me, to what inspires me, to what makes me happy. There was a young man at the church I used to work at. Uh, He's just out of college and he told me he was struggling in his faith. And so we grabbed lunch a few times and we got together. He grew up in the church and I said, okay, well tell me a little bit about what's going on. And we talked and I gave him a few resources to to read hopefully, some C.S. Lewis and stuff like that. Things that had been helpful for me in my own faith journey. And we decided to get back together in a few weeks. And so a few weeks passed and we got back together and I said, so how's it going? You know, he hadn't read any of it, um, but he had decided that he wasn't going to be a Christian anymore. He was going to leave the faith. And I asked him, well, why? Like, what, what happened? Here's what he said. He said, I don't know, Phil. I'm just not feeling it. And I'm like, you're going to leave the faith of your childhood because you're not feeling it? But yeah. I'm just, he just said it over and over again just not feeling it now you and i maybe we hear that and and you go come on that's not a reason like we want facts we want propositional logic you know it's not about how you feel truth doesn't amend to your feelings right that's not a reason but guess what in the age of authenticity that is a reason in fact it's an airtight reason Because in the age of authenticity, it is wrong to stick with something that makes me uncomfortable, that makes me bored, that doesn't stir me, that doesn't inspire me. Because to do so would be inauthentic to who I am. Theologian Andrew Root sums it up like this. He says, better to be bad but authentic than good and phony. That's how he describes the ethic of authenticity. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time here, and I want to be clear about something. I'm not saying everything about it is bad. If I could wave a magic wand and go back to an earlier time in history, I wouldn't do it. Because actually, this, what we're calling ethic or age of authenticity, it has a lot of good things about it. For example, it's just like the elevation of the individual, the, the dignity of the individual, that it's not about how much you have or how much power you have or what family you're born into. That doesn't determine your value. And that's something that we understand today, even though we apply it rather imperfectly. At least most of us would agree that that's true. That's a good thing. However, my job and our job as followers of Jesus is to try to say, okay, what time is it? What times are we living in? And how does that jive with being a Jesus follower, with living out foolish things? And in what ways am I ascribing to the wisdom of the world rather than the foolishness, the message of the cross? And so that's why we have to do this this work. So there's things that a follower of Jesus are going to worry about here. Because while a Jesus follower believes that a meaningful life is one that's spent obeying Jesus, glorifying God, following his will, the age of authenticity leaves to the view that the life that is most meaningful is one that is uninhibited from choosing whatever path we find most attractive. So it's a matter of making what choices are right for you. Now, as we've said, in, in authenticity, the, the, the place to find meaning in life is not out there. It's, it's, it's in here. So, the problem for church unity, I think, is obvious. How do we remain united by something outside of ourselves when we are continually taught to do what we feel? You see the challenge before us. Listen, we are culturally conditioned to be divided. And only the way of Jesus can fix it. We're culturally conditioned to say, hey, if somebody does something I don't like, you know what? You don't need them in your life anymore. You don't need them anymore. You're better without them. Only the way of Jesus can fix us. Paul calls it foolishness. It's the message of the cross that calls me to locate my purpose, my calling, my meaning. Listen, not in myself, but catch this, in actually dying to myself. That is the way of Jesus. And look, this is the complete opposite of the age of authenticity. The thing that Paul is calling us to in 1 Corinthians could not be any more different than the wisdom of the world. And when we get right down into the heart of it, we will realize how true some of the things he's gonna say coming up. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. At my former church that I used to work at, um, you know, I, was, I had the privilege of being like the, the main backup preacher. So when the lead pastor was gone, a lot of times I was the one preaching. It was a great church, a vibrant, healthy church reaching people that don't know Jesus like crazy. It was also a big church, grew pretty quickly. And so it was kind of cool to be able to preach there. Um, and, you know, usually my sermons were pretty well received. But, I've, you know, I've got a style, you all know this. I like to preach about some stuff. Like, I, I have a, I don't know, a heartbeat for justice, racial reconciliation, that kind of thing. And not everybody likes to hear that, to be honest. Um, there were some people in the church who did not like my approach. Let's put it that. Um, And one time I preached a sermon. And (laughs) I I struggle with even to share this because it sounds so unbelievable. Y'all are going to be like, "Nah, Phil, you're making this up. I'm not making this up. This actually happened. I preached a sermon. And after the sermon, the following week, I received multiple letters, like snail mail letters, real letters, from other pastors in other states telling me why my sermon was wrong. <laughs> and I think what had happened was some folks had maybe sent the sermon to their pastor back home or something. They're of a different tradition. And, um, and I got these letters telling me why the sermon was wrong. And uh, the sermon was on women in ministry, by the way. If that helps contextualize why it might have been so controversial. Um, you know, when you say that women can preach, that upsets some people sometimes. They don't, you know, I think the Bible teaches it. But anyway... Uh, I just was like, wow, this is wild. Like, I got emails as well. There's a guy who very much disagreed with my sermon. He, he, was, he, he knew his scriptures and he even knew a little bit of Greek. And so he was trying to tell me, like, why my points were wrong. And I didn't necessarily agree with it all. But you know what happened? I realized something. I, I realized I, I think my points were correct, but I think the way I said them was not. I realized that that sermon was rather disparaging toward people with a different view. Brothers and sisters in Christ with a different view. I realized that I wrote that sermon. I was gearing up for a fight. I knew there was people that disagreed with me, the position of our church, and I'm, I was going to show them who was right. I was writing to win an argument, not to change hearts. You know what I did? I made a few apologies that week. It was probably the most difficult week I had as a young preacher, but also one of the most formative. Listen, the first step toward unity is to recover a tender heart of compassion for each other. To start to realize that the people on the other side of that screen, the people that are out there in the congregation, whoever it might be, that they are human beings too. People with pain, with hopes and dreams, families, loved ones. Like we have to sense the weight of the humanity of the people we criticize. Returning to our verse today, Paul says that, he says, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. You know what I love is that the Greek word for perfectly united, it's just one word and it's the same word that they often use for the process of mending a broken fishing net. Like it's restoring something broken back to wholeness the word brings with it a sense of bringing something back to what it once was back to redemption back to completion he says that you might be mended in thought and in mind so listen let's stop seeing division as walls that are separating us these brick walls that we can't penetrate that's not the that's not division you know what it is we need to start seeing it as wounds Wounds in the body of Christ that need healing, that we need to work together in order to heal. Let us be the first ones to step into that wound and to start to heal it. Another time I was preaching, and it was another sermon that kind of pushed some of the buttons of, you know, my fans, um, air quotes here if you're listening on the podcast. I was young and dumb. I Hopefully I'm better now. But there's one guy, and he wrote, you know, just like here, we have the comment cards um we had that there like the connection cards or the things you could write in and he wrote in there a lot of thoughts in fact he filled up the whole whole comment section and then he started writing around in the margins and so I'm get this thing on Monday I'm like whoa this is something and uh, he wrote all the things he didn't like about my sermon and then he said at the end he said you have no business preaching the gospel And I wonder sometimes, you know, like I said, it was a big church. Maybe people didn't know. I actually read it. You know, I actually do read that stuff. And, um, you know, it actually does affect me a little bit. Um, And so I thought, you know, I'm going to call him. I'm going to call this fella and I'm going to talk to him. And I'm just going to tell him kind of how this makes me feel and see if maybe we can, you know, have a conversation about some of these disagreements and stuff. Um, By the way, Table Church, y'all are really nice. Just need you to know that. Even, I'm not saying you shouldn't tell me when I'm being an idiot, like you should, but you're really nice. You ever seen that bit, uh, Jimmy Kimmel, it's called mean tweets, like celebrities read the tweets that are said about them. I'm like, somebody needs to make one for pastors reading connection cards. It'd be so cathartic for us. Uh, I ended up calling this guy on the phone to talk. I just wanted him to know, hey, this is how it made me feel. Can we talk through some of the things, you know, rather than maybe just this method. And you know what happened? He's, he was driving and he had to pull over in order to, uh, in order to talk because he started to cry. And we got together and we had lunch. He told me his story. He was um, kind of raised himself as a teenager in a pretty hard life. And like this opening started to occur, like starting to understand one another a little bit. And obviously it wasn't perfect after that, but boy. I wonder what would happen if I had done that more. I wonder what would happen if we would do those things more. Maybe it would, you know, it doesn't fix everything, but maybe it would at least be a first step. It doesn't get us to the point of agreeing on everything, but if we're ever going to move towards this unity that the Bible compels us towards, like, we got to start somewhere. Now, before I say what's next, I want to be clear about this. I, would, I don't want to encourage anyone to do something that's not healthy. I, want you to, I don't want to put you in a space that's abusive or anything like that, near a person who you shouldn't be near. I know some of the stories of pain that you all feel, and there's some of you who this might not apply to, and so I encourage you to use discernment and wisdom. But I also know that most of us here have probably attended another church at one point, and some of us carry hurt from that church. And I wonder if, if maybe some of us need to pray about making that kind of phone call. Maybe you need to apologize. Like, I've done that, you know. Hey, I'm sorry, I was wrong on that. Or maybe you need to tell somebody, this is how, hey, this is how this made me feel. Maybe you need to tell someone that you forgive them. Again, if it's not wise or practical, maybe you can do something else. Maybe you can go to the church and pray over it. Maybe you can pray over a picture of the person. I don't know what it, what it looks like. But what's that one step that you can start to take to, to move towards this kind of radical unity that Paul talks about in the church? And I wonder what kind of light it would unleash in Des Moines for Christians to start to do this kind of thing. If we're really is divided as divided as people seem to think. Uh, You know, I celebrate what we did a couple Saturdays ago, the Summer Bash. For anyone who went to the Summer Bash at Drake Park, we got together in um, four churches from the Drake area. So there's us, uh, Hope Elam, Cottage Grove, and New Life Center. So Pentecostal Church, a Baptist church, a Lutheran church, and a Wesleyan church got together through a party in the park for the neighborhood. It was beautiful. We had like a joint worship team um, it was cool, and, and I just wonder, maybe that is like one step towards something that we can do to start to fulfill Jesus' prayer for the church. While he was hanging on the cross as people were crucifying him, Jesus prayed for their forgiveness. It is hard to think of a practice more in line with the way of Jesus than with rushing into some of those hard places in order to bring healing and wholeness again. Listen, there may be nothing more urgent for our witness than to recover unity in the body of Christ. Maybe when the world, when our community, when our city starts to see churches doing that kind of thing, maybe that will be the moment that Jesus' answer, Jesus' prayers are answered. So Paul urged this church to take a bold step of love and grace. And I want to ask us to do the same. Who is it for you? What does it look like for you today? To maybe take that kind of step in order to bring the light of unity to somebody that needs it. And look, if a phone call is too much, totally get it. Maybe you want to write a letter. In fact, we have some stamped envelopes and postcards up here on either corner of the stage. And again, use your wisdom and discernment. But also, don't, don't avoid this. Don't dodge what God might be saying to you through this. Maybe you need to come down as the band plays this next song, grab one of these, and just write someone a card. And it doesn't have to be a big confrontational thing. It could be like, hey, I'm thinking about you. God put you on my heart today. I just want you to know I love you. I'm, par- I'm praying about you. Let me know. How, how can I be praying? about you? Know, it could be something like that, that might just kind of, oh, I don't know, break through that, that hardness, that wall that so often exists between us. I think to do that would definitely be in the way of Jesus. So as the band plays, that's, that's the invitation. Would you pray with me? Oh God, let us be the start of something great in Des Moines. Let's be the start of something important. Something where spiritual strongholds are broken. And Lord, I know that it's hard But I believe that you can bring redemption through any circumstance. So whatever that looks like for us, would you do it? Would you bring it? Would you let us be people that lead the way, people who follow you fearlessly and courageously into the downward way of the cross? Let us be foolish in an age that looks upon us and says, what in the world are they thinking? God, let us be more concerned with what you think than with what anyone else does. Let us be people with hearts that are on fire with love for those around us. That we might be a witness to who you are, to the the burning heart of fire of love that you have for the world. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name.